We're going to be continuing in our exposition of John 14 today. If you've been with us, you know that Jesus has been comforting his disciples who were troubled over the fact that he was about to leave them to return to the Father. <clears throat> Gave them promises that were meant to not only lift their hearts, their spirits, but help them refocus on the mission at hand, the gospel. Last Sunday, we, we looked at Jesus' statement in verse 15, where he reminded them to express love for him through obedience to his commandments, rather than through grief and sorrow. We learned that obedience is the hallmark, hallmark of, of genuine saving faith and love for God. This morning we're going to take a look at Jesus's sixth promise, the promise of the paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete. And I say that because I, I kept saying parakeet all week long, and that's not at all what we're looking at. We're looking at the paraclete. And, and if you're curious as to what paraclete is or means, um, it is the Greek root word for helper in verse 16. Jesus promises to give a helper, and helper uh, transliterated is paraclete. That would be the Greek word. And it literally means one called alongside to help. That's how it translates. And it can, paraclete can be translated as not only helper, but in a number of ways. You, comforter is a good word, or counselor, encourager, uh, exhorter, uh, intercessor, advocate. I think advocate's probably the strongest. I don't know why the ESV doesn't use that. Uh, but those are some English words that can be used uh, for paraclete. Some English translations do use the word advocate, instead of helper, and I think that, that gives a better idea of what a paraclete is. In antiquity, a paraclete was basically a defense attorney, Jacobian Myers. If you needed help, I think they were accident attorneys, so never mind on that, but if you needed help with legal aid, if you had a legal problem in the Roman world, you would contact a paraclete, and, and that person would represent you come alongside of you and, and help you in your defense. The paraclete, helper, or advocate Jesus points to here is not a law firm or a lawyer, but the Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete. In fact, in the first century, the Roman or Greek Christians actually called the Holy Spirit the paraclete. That was the name that they gave him. So the promise of the paraclete is none other than the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to be looking at. Let's pick it up at verse 16. Verse 16, John 14. Verse 16 of John 14. This is where we continue from last week. Jesus continues by saying, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. There's paraclete to be with you forever, end, right there. So in the previous section, Jesus had been speaking of the disciples' love for him, marked by an obedient walk, right? That's what we looked at. 
In the previous section, that's what he was talking about. Look, you guys are mourning and weeping and crying. You're all upset. You're all turned up and messed up over the fact that I'm leaving. That's not the way that I want you to love me. I want you to love me through obedience to my commandments. So he's telling them how they must love him. And, and here in this next line, we see Jesus revealing his love for them as evidenced by his asking the Father to send one who would help them. And this is the promise of the paraclete. This is where we see it, right here in 16. Jesus basically says this. This is a paraphrase of 16. I'm not going to leave you helpless. I'm praying to the Father that he will send you another helper who comes with strength to help you walk in obedience, help you spread the gospel, help you make disciples, help you stand before threatening magistrates, which they will, and he will help you stand by the very power of God. This is what Jesus is essentially promising. I'm going to send you one that's going to help you do these things. Now, the first thing I want you to know about verse 16 is how it's Trinitarian. We see the whole Trinity mentioned in verse 16. There's a few passages in the Bible where we actually see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and this is one of them. We see all three members of the Godhead right here in this text, right? You've got the Son asking or praying, and the Father is represented there. And what's the Father doing? He's giving the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So there you go. You've got the Son, you've got the Father, and you've got the Holy Spirit right there in verse 16, all packed into that, the Trinity. And those who deny Trinitarianism, the doctrine of Trinity or the Godhead, deny the evidence as seen here and in many, many other scriptures, such as Matthew 3, 16 through 17 and 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The Bible just teaches that God is one in three. This is a, a doctrine we Christians must not only acknowledge but affirm and believe and defend. We must defend it. We have to believe this, and that's why I pause there to mention that. Now let's analyze the words and phrases of verse 16. First phrase I want to look at is, and I will ask the Father. It's the first phrase. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father. Now this statement represents the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus as our great high priest. After the ascension, Jesus took his place at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on behalf of all believers, right? Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25 tells us this. And as the result of His intercession in heaven, we obtain all of our blessings. We actually have our spiritual blessings that are mentioned in Ephesians 1 because Jesus prays for us to have them, because He intercedes for us. And this simple little phrase, this simple little statement just totally shows this ministerial work of Jesus as our great high priest. And I will ask the Father. This is the only time he's going to ask the Father of something for his people. He's going to do it all the time. It was as if Jesus had said, when I return to my Father's house, right? Verse 3, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. When I return to my Father's house, I will pray and petition the Father for you. Now, why must Jesus, or why does Jesus pray when he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Why doesn't he just look over and talk to the Father? Well, that's probably what praying looks like in that scenario. I don't know. But in any case, there is interaction between the Father and the Son. 
And a great majority of that interaction has to do with Jesus interceding for his people, praying for his people, praying that we would be preserved, protected, that we would mature, whatever it is that he prays for. It's a, it's a mysterious work that he does for us there, but he does it nonetheless. MacArthur wrote, the priestly and intercessory work of Christ began with the request that the Father send the Holy Spirit to indwell the people of faith. So what MacArthur is saying is this is like the first act of his intercessory work on behalf of believers. This is where that high priestly work that he does began. I think that's a very interesting point. Next phrase. I love the confidence in this next phrase. Jesus says, He will give you He didn't say, I'll pray to him and he might give you. He didn't say, I'll pray to him and he could give you. No, Jesus states with absolute certainty that the Father will give the disciples, give his people precisely what Jesus asks for. I will ask the Father and he will, will give you. Now, A question arises, how could Jesus be certain that the Father would answer this petition or any petition? Well, as we've learned from the Gospel of John and the entire Scripture, Jesus is God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's in cahoots on this plan of salvation. He came down to execute the Father's architectural plan. He knows exactly what the Father's going to grant, and He prayed in the Father's will all the time that the Father would grant the things that He promised to grant. So He knows without a doubt that this petition, He'll still petition Him, but He knows without a doubt that it will be granted. He knows it. And I I would just simply boil it down to the fact that He's God, that He and the Father are one. This is a point that He's reiterated over and over in John. We saw it in chapter 10, verse 30. He's God. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. This plan is part, He's part of this plan. Now, he will give you the Holy Spirit is what he's saying. Another question arises, is this the first time that the Holy Spirit will be given to believers? Is that what he's referring to here? No. No, the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit differently, but they did have the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time. He's petitioning the Father here, but this isn't the first time that the Holy Spirit's been given. I Recall to memory, I think, Psalm 51, where David says, let not your spirit be taken from me because of this grievous sin that he had committed. The spirit had been given to certain individuals in the Old Testament that they could carry out the very will of God. King David was one of them. The prophets had the spirit. So this is not the first time. I like J.C. Ryle's commentary. I think it's very helpful. He wrote, When we read of the Holy Ghost, and this is what the old timers called the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, and whenever I think of ghost, I think Casper, so I don't like to use ghost. I think Holy Spirit's better to me. I don't know. Maybe you like Holy Ghost, but when we think of ghost, I think of, we're ghost fanatical today in our culture, right? You got all these ghost chasing shows and everything. It's just ridiculous. But he says, when we read of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, being given We must not think that he was in no sense in the church before the day of Pentecost. He was ever in the hearts of Old Testament believers. No one ever served God acceptably from Abel downward without the grace of the Holy Ghost. John the Baptist was filled with him. And if you think about John the Baptist, he was in many ways an Old Testament prophet. He really was in a sense. 
And he says, it can only mean that he shall come, speaking of the Spirit, that the Spirit shall come with more fullness, influence, grace, and manifestation than he did before. This is what Ryle says. And I think his statement is pretty accurate. This is not the first giving of the Spirit, but this is going to be a different giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Next phrase, two words, another helper, Jesus says. Notice how Jesus did not promise the disciples a replacement, which it seemed like a lot of commentaries were kind of pointing to. He says, another helper, doesn't he? Another helper. Now, some say this is just a reference to the Holy Spirit that's been around already. I don't think that's what he means. I think he was not promising the disciples a replacement. He promised to give another helper. In other words, someone in addition to himself. Because the idea of the Holy Spirit replacing Jesus just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work at all. And uh, I think the Holy Spirit was to be given as a kind of compensation for Jesus' you know, physical absence. He's going to be physically leaving them. And Jesus had been their counselor, guide, and friend. The helper would, would soon fill the offices that Jesus could no longer fill without being with them physically. It's not a replacement for Jesus. It's in addition to Jesus' ongoing throne ministry. But the Spirit will no doubt take up spiritual residency in these people, in disciples and all believers, and do the things that Jesus cannot do physically, in a sense. I like what Barnes wrote here. He says, what is the office of the Holy Spirit? And he just summarizes. This is just so great, because when we think of the Holy Spirit, he's got a lot of titles and he does a lot of things. But I love this, especially connected to this text. He says, it is to furnish to all Christians, the instruction and consolation which would be given by the personal presence of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? That's how the Holy Spirit, the, the paraclete, the helper, the comforter, the advocate, will come and assist and be another helper. He will be in addition to Jesus' continuing ministry. Jesus will be here doing it, because if we think of Jesus in physical form, he can only be in one place at a time. So he will be at his throne ministering and interceding. We've already even looked at that, but the Holy Spirit will be given in a spiritual and even in a, in a kind of a spiritual manifestation to help them along, to kind of take the place of Jesus' physical absence. MacArthur called the Holy Spirit the perfect substitute for the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the full presence of Jesus, because he'll still be with them. The Spirit will manifest Jesus in them. But he is the perfect substitute for the full presence or physical presence of Jesus. I kind of pointed to this already, but it's very important that we note, and this kind of plays into the idea of Jesus being replaced. We don't want to think of it like that. It's important to note that he will still be totally Jesus. Even though he's not with them physically, he will totally be actively involved in the disciples' lives interceding for them from his throne, perfecting their faith, doing all the things that our great high priest, king of kings, does, our prophet does. He will still be ministering to them, and he will do so much of that ministry through the paraclete. So we don't want to think of the helper, the Holy Spirit, as a replacement. He is another helper, not the only helper. 
One of the things, again, that the Spirit does is He manifests the spiritual presence of Jesus to believers. You ever sense the the spiritual presence of Christ in your life? That is the active, ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, making you aware of His presence. He makes us aware. And not only that, but He makes us aware of the glorious mystery, which is what? Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? Colossians 1.27. This is all the active work of the paraclete. It is also important to note here that Jesus speaks of the helper, the paraclete, as a person. This helper, he speaks of, he speaks of as a person, not a, a force, not a, an emanation, not a projection. As a person, MacArthur writes again, contrary to the false teaching of cults such as Jehovah's Witnesses and the assumption of many professed Christians, because many regular professing Christians seem to get this wrong, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force or power. We don't want to think of Him like that. The Bible reveals that, that the Holy Spirit possesses the attributes of personhood. You aware of that? He has a mind, Romans 8, 27. He has intellect, 1 Corinthians 2, 11. He has emotions. He can be grieved, Ephesians 4, 30. Scripture also reveals that he does things that only a person can do. He teaches, right? He's our instructor, Luke 12, 12. He testifies to Jesus, to the gospel, right? John 15, 26. He, he leads, he leads Romans 8, 14. He gives guidance, Acts 15, 28. He, he convicts us of sin and the world of sin, John 16, 8. He speaks, Acts 8, 29. He intercedes like Jesus in a sense, Romans 8, 26. And he reveals, he reveals truth and error to us, Luke 2, 26. I mean, that just doesn't sound like a force. These are all the things that a person can do. The Holy Spirit can also be lied to. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? You remember that text where they lied about their giving? And Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and then they were struck dead. He can be lied to. How do you lie to a force? You lie to people. You lie to a person. He can be insulted. Hebrews 10, 29, the rejection of Jesus is is the insulting of the Spirit. He can be blasphemed, which, by the way, is the unpardonable sin. And I think that blasphemy has to do with just an all-out, full lifetime of rejecting Jesus Christ. Matthew 12, 31 He can be lied to, he can be insulted, he can be blasphemed, maligned. Well, that's personhood. Not only does Jesus speak of the Holy Spirit as a person, but he speaks of him as a divine person, as God. And this is important as well. Notice how the H in helper is capitalized. Do you see that? The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. He is 
called the Spirit of God in Ezekiel 11.24 and in Matthew 3.16. He is called the the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16.7, the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.19, and the the Spirit of Christ in 1 Peter 1.11. He is mentioned with the Father and the Son in the Trinitarian baptism formula of Matthew 28, 19. You know, our great commission, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He possesses divine attributes, including eternity. In other words, he is eternal, Hebrews 9, 14. He possesses omniscience, that's all knowledge, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. He is omnipresent, all present, Psalm 139, verse 7. He is omnipotent, Genesis 1, 2 through 31. We see in the creation account and over in Job 33, verse 4. He possesses veracity, which means perfect truthfulness, 1 John 5, 6. He possesses the power to give life, Romans 8, 2. He does the works only God can do, including creating the universe, Genesis 1, again, 2 through 31, and Psalm 33, 6 through 9. He inspires or inspired scripture, 2 Peter 1.21 and 2 Tim 3.16. He regenerates the hearts of lost sinners, John 3.6, Titus 3.5. He sanctifies believers, conforms them to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, he makes us like Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and 1 Peter 1.2. As you can see, he is a person. As you can see, He is God. And lastly, lastly, Scripture unequivocally states that the Holy Spirit is God in Acts 5, 3 through 4, and 2 Corinthians 3, 17. There is no debate on the matter. The Holy Spirit is a person, and He is God. He has personhood, and He is divine. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. Last phrase. To be with you forever, Jesus says. Though His departure was imminent, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be with them forever. Now, this is questionable as to what Jesus meant. Do we take the word forever literally or do we not? Well, I would tend to think that since Jesus said it, we do take it literally, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure, because the question becomes, will believers still need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit while in glory or in Jesus' future kingdom? Will we need that kind of divine assistance since even though that we've been perfected, especially at the resurrection when we have our physical bodies back that are incorruptible? Does it make sense that we would still need that active, ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit? No, no. I don't think he meant forever. I think he was juxtaposing to his departure. I think what Jesus meant was that the Holy Spirit shall be with all believers until Jesus or during Jesus' physical absence. I think as long as believers live outside of the physical presence of Jesus, they will need the Holy Spirit. They're going to need Him. 
they pass away and go to be with Jesus, the Holy Spirit will no longer be in them because they, you know, they've been restored to Jesus' physical presence. Now, think of the logic of this. Jesus is leaving, and this is why. He's not going to be with them physically anymore, and this is why he gives the helper. Well, doesn't it make sense that if we go to Jesus' physical presence, that we will no longer need that helper in that way? Yes. Think of it logically. So when we fall asleep and go to be with Jesus, I don't think the Holy Spirit is still going to be in us in the same way because we shall be restored to the physical presence of Jesus or actually not restored for us for the first time ever. Can't wait for that. We are, in a sense, perfected. Not totally because we don't have our physical bodies until the resurrection, but we are perfected in that we don't have sin anymore. We don't have to deal with that struggle anymore, which is one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit in us, is to help us deal with sin and conquer it. If Jesus returns to establish His kingdom and reign, the same rule must apply. He's here physically. In other words, the Holy Spirit will always be with believers as long as they are separated from Jesus' physical presence. Doesn't that make sense? Yes. Could I be wrong? Yes, we may have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit on into eternity, if that's what Jesus intends. I'm fine with it either way. I'm fine with it either way, but it makes sense that he gives a helper in his steed when he's physically gone, and it makes sense that we will not need that helper in the same way once that physical presence of Jesus, whether it be we go to glory or he comes down and sets up his reigning kingdom, either way. I like uh, J.C. Ryle's comment here. He says, When we read of the Spirit abiding forever with disciples, it means that He will not, like Christ, after His resurrection, return to the Father, but will always be with God's people until Christ comes again. So my thought on it is affirmed by J.C. Ryle. Actually, I stole the thought from him and just kind of reworked it. Because I was thinking, he's going to be with us forever. Well, then I started thinking about it. Well, he, he is going to be with us forever in a sense. We'll be in his presence in heaven. So he will be with us forever if you really think about it. Now let's move to verse 17. Jesus continues by saying, Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here, Jesus refers to the Helper, the one He just identified, the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Truth. This is one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of Truth. And this is a fitting title because the Holy Spirit is the revealer and inspirer of divine truth. Now, He will guide the Holy Spirit. One of His tasks will be to guide these men sitting around this table, and all believers for that matter, but to be guide, particularly to guide these men into a right understanding of the gospel, John 16, 13, and work through them to record the New Testament. There's the revelation. Some of these men are going to author Scripture, but they're not really, I mean, they're the human author in a sense, but the Holy Spirit is the divine inspirer and author behind it. He is the spirit of truth in that he reveals truth to believers and to unbelievers when they get saved. Now, we must understand that divine revelation is closed. The Bible is complete. But certain aspects of this supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit are still ongoing. 
When a believer grasps a spiritual truth from God's Word, it is the Holy Spirit who enabled him or her to do that. If you read a verse and, and, and you get it and it clicks for you, that is the presence and power and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Even once we've been regenerated, there's still a dullness about us. We still have a sinful nature and flesh we have to deal with. We still need God's help and even understanding elementary truths. Boy, today in a, we live in an unprecedented age of biblical ignorance. Basic Christians can't even understand basic doctrine. Makes me wonder if the Spirit's with them at all. Maybe not. Maybe they're not real Christians. But for the most part, man, when, when we grasp a truth, it's because the Spirit has enabled that and wants to accomplish that in our life to sanctify us more and to maybe cause us to become a, a better teacher to others or whatever. When I write these sermons, the Holy Spirit is working in me and giving me understanding. It's what He does. It's what He does in our hearts. It's what He does in our minds. When we grasp a spiritual truth, that's the Holy Spirit's ministry. And as I said earlier, when an unbeliever hears the gospel and believes it, that too is the active work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who grants understanding of spiritual truths. Since spiritual truth is spiritual, it must be discerned spiritually by the Holy Spirit if we are to rightfully understand it. This Bible is filled with spiritual truth, and you need a spiritual discerner or interpreter to break down what it means for you. And that is precisely what the Holy Spirit does. He is the Spirit of truth. And those who do not have the Holy Spirit cannot rightly understand the Bible. They cannot rightly understand spiritual truths. The Bible sounds like foolishness to them. The gospel sounds like foolishness to them, right? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man thinks that the things that we're dealing with on a week-to-week -week basis in here are just stupid. I know that for a fact. I went to church on and off quite a bit throughout my life, and every time I went in there, I thought, these people are morons. They believe this stuff? Casper the Holy Ghost? What is this junk? This is ridiculous. I just scoffed and scoffed and scoffed. I didn't have the Holy Spirit. I didn't have the ability to discern and comprehend what was being unpacked in front of me. I could laugh along with some of the preacher's stories and things they told, but that was as far as I could go. That's why I always liked the illustrations a lot, because that was something I could understand. Those were just stories, but when it came to this truth here, man, it was like there was a scales over my eyes and plugs in my ears. For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And this seems to be Jesus' precise point in the next line where he said, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. This was Jesus' way of, of cautioning the disciples in advance that despite the Holy Spirit's work in and through them, they would still face hostility and, and rejection from an unbelieving world. The world thinks the Holy Spirit's a joke. Well, it chases after ghosts and goes into these weird, allegedly haunted places. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's a joke to them. They can't see Him. They can't hear Him. They can't taste. They have no idea. And they just think, well, because it's not, He's not materialized, 
You know how people err on the side of science today, right? Well, if I can't prove that it exists, then it, therefore it must not exist. This is the mindset of people today, and they just, they, they don't believe in the Spirit. They reject Him, and it's because they're dead in their trespasses. But unlike the world, the disciples were already well acquainted with the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them this. They already had Him in an Old Testament kind of way, Right? Jesus says, you know him, and he will be in you. So they were familiar. They knew what Jesus was saying, and they were probably thinking, what a shame that the rest of the world can't see him or hear him or know him. So they were familiar. They, they knew what Jesus was talking about. They, they had the Holy Spirit in an Old Testament way, but on Pentecost, that would change. On that day, the Holy Spirit would be given to these men and to all believers in an unprecedented way, in a different way. He will be with believers and in believers until the physical presence of Jesus Christ is restored, or maybe forever and ever. See, in the Old Testament, there were these temporary anointings of the Holy Spirit. This is why David cried out, let him not be taken from me. Well, the Holy Spirit today, post-Pentecost, can never be taken from a believer. Never. It's an impossibility. And this idea of, or not idea, but it's a doctrinal truth of the Holy Spirit being given permanently, this is all part of the new covenant which Jesus ratified with His own blood just in a few hours in the narrative on the cross. Now let's move to 18 to 20. I need to wet my throat because it's on fire right now. I almost feel like an auctioneer. Am I going really fast? I hope not. 18 through 20. And Jesus says this, and I just love these words. They're so personal and, and so encouraging. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. It ends there. Jesus promises not to leave his disciples as orphans after his death. I love that. I use that terminology. It's almost, I love how Jesus used the terminology in, in, in the original language. It's, it's almost like you get the idea of a dying father or something. Look, I have set things up for you in such a way that you're going to be okay when I'm gone. That's the kind of endearing, loving words and gracious words that are represented here from the Lord. I, I'm not going to leave you guys out. I've got a plan. I've got a plan. And Jesus is telling them, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to visit you. And he did. He visited them after his resurrection, right? This is one way that he proves that he's not going to orphan them out. After he's risen, he goes to them. He meets with them in the upper room. He spends many, many weeks with them before he ascends. He didn't just flat out leave them. He returned to them physically in his glorified state. Plus, plus, how are they not orphans? Plus, they shall receive the helper, the Holy Spirit, who what? Manifests the spiritual presence of Jesus after the ascension. This is a promise here. You're not going to be orphaned out. I will come back and see you once I'm risen, 
and then I will ascend, and I will send the Holy Spirit who will manifest my spiritual presence with you. You will know that I am with you even though I'm not standing next to you. This is what he says. This must have been such a great consolation because, again, they are tore up, emotionally distressed. Terasso is the Greek word at the thought of him leaving physically and just killed him. And here he's saying, look, I'm going to come back, man. I'm going to go die, but I'm going to rise. And I'll come and I'll spend time with you and then I'll send the helper. In verse 19a, Jesus says something that's just phenomenal and interesting. He basically tells the disciples that he is not going to physically show himself to the world after he has risen, but only to them, only to other believers. Did you ever stop to think about that? After the Lord rose from the grave, who did he interact with? Who did he visit with? Other believers, the disciples. He did not go to Herod and say, look, I told you so. He didn't go to Pontius Pilate and say, look, I told you so. He didn't take a trip over to Rome and stand before the the Caesar and say, look, I told you so. Jesus, in physical glorified form after the resurrection, did not reveal himself or show himself to a single unbeliever. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think that that'd be the first thing that you would do? See, this is, this is baffling to one of the disciples in the text here. He can't get his mind around this, and he begins to question Jesus in the next section. Why are you not going to manifest yourself to the world? Why are you not going to physically show yourself? You know, you could easily just walk up with the holes in your wrists, show them your ankles, show them the cut, the scars on your head. You could easily do that, and I tell you what, they'd probably just, uh, you know, immediately believe. No, they wouldn't. Why is it that Jesus chose not to physically reveal himself post-resurrection to an unbelieving world, especially to those who persecuted him and and murdered and slaughtered him. Why did he not, on on day four, take a little trip over to the Sanhedrin and present himself to the 70 elders that were in there and say, yo, what's up? Of course, that's my urban translation of what he would say. Told you so. Oh, mic drop, you know. He didn't do anything like that. Why would he choose not to do that? Why did he not do that? Well, first of all, I think we could deduce that it's not part of God's sovereign plan that he do that. That'd be the bigger reason. But I think ultimately it wouldn't have made a bit of difference to unbelievers. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told where he talks about Lazarus and and the wealthy man and Lazarus dies and and the wealthy man is crying out and saying, man, if you could just send Lazarus, raise him from the dead and send him back to my family, then they would not fall into the same trap that I've fallen into. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, in speaking on behalf of Abraham, well, they're not going to change their mind. If they're not adhering to the Mosaic law, they're not going to change their mind when they see somebody raised from the dead. You see, you see somebody raised from the dead, it doesn't produce faith in you. It's the Spirit's work to regenerate and give the gifts of repentance and faith. You could see a thousand corpses raised. It's not going to cause you to believe in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit is working in you to cause that. That's, he's the one that makes the connection to That's the power of God manifested in those corpses that are coming up. He makes you know that. So I don't think it would have made a bit of difference. He could have stood before Herod, Herod probably on some good cab, <laughs> whatever. He wouldn't have done anything. He wouldn't have changed. Pontius Pilate wouldn't have changed. Keep eating the grapes, you know, being fanned. It wouldn't have changed. Nothing would have changed. Now, if you'd like to see a list of, of the believers Jesus physically showed himself to, 
Mark this down. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 17. Now, it's not a comprehensive list because Jesus had several female disciples. They're not mentioned there. You think of the Marys and the men that he uh, accompanied on the road to Emmaus who were believers. They, they're not mentioned there either, so it's not comprehensive. But I think if you look at Scripture, you'll see that he did not go out and you know, go back to the side of the cross and stand up there and say, look, I'm back. He didn't do that to the lost world. It wasn't God's will for him to do that, and it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. He didn't do it. He only revealed himself to believers. In verses 19b through 20, Jesus declares two encouraging resurrection truths. First, his rising from the dead ensures that the disciples and all believers will rise from spiritual death and physical death. He says, because I live, you will live. And he's talking about two types of living here. He's talking about spiritual life and physical life. He's talking about spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection. In other words, his resurrection is foundational to our spiritual resurrection, new birth, and future physical resurrection at his return. is foundational to it. Because he rose, we rise spiritually and later physically. And again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit here. This is why the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 14. The resurrection is, an, is necessary to our salvation. Without it, we are not saved. We, will, we are not raised to new life and we will not be raised in resurrection bodies later on. It is critical that we understand that we need the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I always add life in there because that's where our righteousness comes from, even though the gospel can be summarized as death, burial, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, I believe, says that as well. But I always add the life of Christ as well because we need to understand that we, have, we need righteousness in order to enter heaven. Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. He was using hyperbole, but the point is we need a righteousness that doesn't come through earning, but comes, it's an alien righteousness that comes through him. So I say we need to understand that Jesus lived for our righteousness because that's the only way we can know God. That's the only way we can go to heaven. And then he died to pay for our sins. That's the only way we can go to heaven. Buried to settle our account, rose from the grave. That's the only way we can go to heaven. It's his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Understand that. Believe that. Second, his rising from the dead. That was the first resurrection truth, right? His resurrection provides us with spiritual and physical resurrection. Second, his rising from the dead will help to illuminate the disciples and all believers of the union that exists between Christians and the Trinity, the Godhead. He says, I am in the Father, I will be in you and you will be in me. You see it there. Because of his resurrection... Believers are brought into Christ, right? By grace through faith. Faith in what? Life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are brought into Christ. We are placed within Him in a spiritual sense. And He is what? The second member of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And guess what? The believer has Christ in them. That's the mystery I mentioned earlier. That's how we are brought into the Trinity. Christ is placed within us, and now we have this fellowship 
with the Godhead. We have this union with the Godhead because of that mystery of Christ in us through the paraclete, through his ministry, through his supernatural work. Because of his resurrection, we're brought into Christ, the second member of the Trinity. Christ is placed within us through the Holy Spirit. There's the union that we have. It's almost as if Christ has brought us into that three-way relationship, that Trinitarian relationship. This is so wonderful what's been done for us. And it's very mysterious. I can't get my mind around it. I can't even get my mind around how God is three in one. I, I, I've been wrestling with that for a while. I can't get my mind around the hypostatic union, how Christ is fully man, fully God. There's things I can't get my mind around, but that doesn't mean I reject them. I take them by faith. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can begin to even grasp these truths because Jesus says this. Although no human mind can fully grasp this union this in the Trinity and the union that we have within the Trinity, because no human mind can really get... I mean, we have finite, limited minds. We can't get our mind completely around that truth. But believers can, however, rest in the knowledge that they have been placed within the most perfect and satisfying relationship that can ever be experienced on this side of glory and throughout all eternity. You can know that. You can know that you've been brought in. You can know that you can never be brought out. Jesus said, no one can rip you from my grip. And more than that, the Father has his grip over mine. And no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. There's no way to bring us out of this union with the Trinity because of Christ and because of his resurrection. What a consolation he gives to his disciples here. Just these, these big, big truths. And I'll tell you what, were they wrestling with him? Yeah, they didn't fully grasp what was going on here. Not until he opened their minds at the ascension and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes that they really began to get these things because they needed the spirit of truth in a way that they didn't have him. It's because of the spirit of truth. It's because of the helper that we can grasp any of this stuff at all. Closing. Closing. <clears throat> to be separated from God is to be like an orphan. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says to them. And the idea of being separated from Jesus is to be like an orphan. The idea of being separated from the Godhead is to be like an orphan. And since all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 6, 23, and all people are separated from God because of sin, Isaiah 59, 2, the world has become like one giant orphanage. Those image bearers whom God created have been orphaned. Now, in a typical scenario, when we're talking orphanage or orphans, you have the parents or a parent abandoning their child, right? But with God, it happened in the reverse. He did not abandon us. We abandoned Him. It was a loving, benevolent, perfectly gracious, kind Father that we, that we, that we sinned against and rebelled against for no good reason. And we were deceived. 
We chose to rebel and sin against the Father who created us. So this separation is entirely our fault, not His. Humanity has orphaned itself. The good news is this same Father whom humanity rebelled against and is currently separated from predestined some for adoption to Himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1.5 If God had not taken the initiative and planned to do this, all of humanity would remain spiritually dead in sin and separated from Him as orphans. God had not taken the initiative and predestined to set some apart for Him that He would set some apart for Jesus as a gift that He would adopt by grace through faith, through His sovereign plan and will, we would all remain as orphans. One big orphanage. One big sad, sad orphanage. Not like the movie Annie or book. Great question arises, how can you tell if your status has changed? How can you tell if you've been adopted by God? How do you know? How do you know? Have you been born again? The thing is, is that there's a liberal lie out there that says that every person is God's child. It's not true. Every person is an image bearer, no doubt, but not every person is a child of God. There is no universal childhood or what have you. Only those who have been born of God are children of God. You understand? This universal brotherhood of man and all this malarkey and these just liberalism. It's all it is. No, I'm not thinking of the political wing of it. I'm thinking of the spiritual, the degrading of the gospel and truth. Have you been born of God? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? You will know. You will know. It's unmistakable. Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone? These are all qualifiers. These are questions that I'm asking you to see if you have been transferred out of the, out of the uh, orphanage into the very family of God. Do you love Jesus and hate sin? Or do you hate Jesus and love sin? Do you, do you and this is what he just talked about, do you obey Jesus' commandments? Because that's how we show that we love him that who you are? Are you becoming like Jesus? Not in His divinity. That's an impossibility. Sorry, Mormons. Are you becoming like Him in His character? Do you walk in holiness and purity? Guard what you say. He didn't have to guard what He said. He wasn't a sinner. We do. Do you love righteousness? These are all signs that your status has been changed from 
orphan to adopted. These are all signs. These signs are not present in your life. You're obviously still separated from God. You're still an orphan. Now, if you desire to have your status change, the Holy Spirit is likely already working in you because this is not something that us natural people desire. We're perfectly fine with our sin and who we are. Oh, you're telling me I'm an orphan? Fine, whatever. That doesn't put a controlling God in my life. I'll remain as an orphan. He's not a controlling God. He's a loving God. If you want your status to change, the Holy Spirit is likely working in you. And I'd say humble yourself. Obey the Spirit's instructions, what He's prompting you to do. Call upon God for mercy. That's really all you can do. You can't cause yourself to be born again. You can't cause faith to arise in you. You're dead. You're a corpse. But if there is a spark of interest in the things of God, maybe the Spirit's at work in you. And you can plead with Him for mercy. And if He's merciful... He will exercise the gifts of repentance and faith. He will put them in you. You will confess your unbelief. You will confess your sins before God. You will, without a doubt, put your trust in Christ alone. You'll believe that your righteousness, forgiveness, and resurrection are all in Him and in Him only. You will, you shall embrace Him as your Lord and Savior by grace through faith, and you shall be saved. Acts 16.31 Man, I, I'm just praying for you now, even though I'm speaking. But the Holy Spirit is rotting these things, solidifying these things in your heart, that He is changing you. That you pass from death to life. That you pass from orphan to adopted and loved son or daughter. Now for those of us who are already in Christ, we've already experienced these truths and these realities, it is easy for us to take for granted the wonderful promise of the paraclete, isn't it? We do this when we forget that, that the Spirit is in us and we attempt to, to walk in our own power and wisdom, our own strength. So much of what I've done, even as a, as a Christian, has been attempted to be done in my own wisdom. In my own strength. I have written sermons without even praying. What a fool. Any wonder why the ministry that I lead lacks power at times? Or any. It's obvious why I. I'm so depleted most days. You see, God gives you a few talents, a few gifts, and 
and you just run hog wild with him and you forget him. Am I resonating with anyone? Can anyone hear? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it it doesn't just have to be a ministry thing. It can be your daily life. How can we tell if we've fallen into this trap? Forgetting the paraclete. Is our life disorderly and discombobulated? If your life is chaotic, it's obviously here. It's obvious that you've forgotten that you have the paraclete in you and that the paraclete is a God of order. Now, my life isn't all discombobulated and disoriented. I don't tend to run that way, but I know some of you and your life is like that. You run from one fire to another, but you don't even have an extinguisher. If your life is disorderly, discombobulated, it's obvious. If is our ministry spiritually, emotionally, and physically draining? Now, I, I know that, that ministry can be that way. I, 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 my, the Spirit is recalling to my mind the words of Paul where he talked about how they were just pulverized up to the point of death. I get it. You can have the Spirit, remember the paraclete and all that, and it can be very draining. I don't want to say that that's not possible, but could it be possible that the reason why we are so spent Spiritually, physically, emotionally, all the time is because we've forgotten about the paraclete. We've forgotten who's in us and where our power comes from and where our wisdom comes from. Another sign, you give in to temptation pretty regularly, right? You know, gratifying the desires of your flesh. Man, that is a sign, man. If, if, if you can't flee from elementary basic temptations, you either don't have the Spirit or you have so quenched Him or you've just forgotten that He's there, you can't even hear His voice anymore. Warning you, don't do it. I think one of the big ones... How you know, how you know if you fall into this trap is if your joy is being sapped. That's how you know. That's how you know. In the presence of God is joy forevermore. The Holy Spirit is God. He's in you. He brings that joy. And if your joy is getting constantly sucked out of you, under attack. Well, it could be your circumstances that are helping to cause it. It could be the fact that you've forgotten the paraclete, who's the source of your joy. And these are all signs that we are not walking in the Spirit's presence, power, and wisdom. How do we get back to where we should be? First, begin by confessing your sins. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins 
and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Second, repent or turn away from the sinful things that are grieving the Holy Spirit and causing you and others harm. It's not enough just to confess our sin. We have to fight it. If we don't kill our sin, our sin will be killing us. This is war. Kill it. Third, allow yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a difference between being indwelled and filled. All true believers are indwelled, but not all true believers are filled. To be filled with the Holy Spirit has to do with granting Him freedom to occupy every part of our lives and to guide and control us. Be filled with the Spirit. And fourth, maintain the filling of the Holy Spirit. How do you do this? Go back to verse 15. Obey my commandments. That's how you do it. I'll close by reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which is one of my favorite booklets. It's a small booklet of Puritan prayers and devotionals. It's just phenomenal. This particular prayer is entitled, The Spirit's Work. And, I, and I'm praying that we make this our prayer, that this would be our prayer. <clears throat> it says, O oh God, the Holy Spirit, you who proceeds from the Father and the Son, have mercy on me. When you first hovered over chaos, order was born, fruitfulness sprang forth, and beauty robed the world. I pray that you would move upon my disordered heart. Take away the infirmities of unruly desires and hateful lusts and, and lift the mists and darkness of unbelief. Brighten my soul with the pure light of truth and make it fragrant as the garden of paradise, rich with every good fruit, beautiful with heavenly grace and radiant with rays of divine light. Fulfill in me the glory of your divine offices. Be my comforter, light, guide, and sanctifier. Take the things of Christ and show them, show them to my soul. Through you may I daily learn more of his love, grace, compassion, faithfulness, and beauty. Lead me to the cross and show me his wounds, the hateful nature of evil, and the power of Satan. May I see there my sins as the nails that transfixed him, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, and the sword that pierced him. Help me to find in his death the reality and immensity of his love. Open for me the wonderful volumes of the truth in his, it is finished. Increase my faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, expiation completed, sanctification made, guilt done away, my debt paid, my sins forgiven, my person redeemed, my soul saved, hell vanquished, heaven opened, and eternity made mine. 
O Holy Spirit, deepen in me these saving lessons. Write them upon my heart that my walk be sin-loathing, sin-fleeing, Christ-loving, and suffer no devil's device to beguile or deceive me.